0: Good morning, Grace Point. I know that this morning feels a little bit different. We're not able to gather corporately, physically as the body this morning. And so, yes, the method of our worship together looks different. Uh, but I just want to remind us again this morning that our mission has not changed. Our, our goal and our prayer is that we would still continue to be a people who encounter grace, grow in grace, and become grace givers. And, and so for me, part of how I've been praying throughout this week Is that wherever and with whomever you're gathered, that that space would become sacred space, that you would genuinely encounter God's presence as we worship through music. And now as we encounter God's word together, Uh, we're continuing in our our series, looking at the gospel of John. And last week, Pastor Steve made a really uh, interesting observation. He said, we have this tendency to make assumptions. And the challenging thing about assumptions is that a wrong assumption leads to a wrong conclusion. So an assumption is essentially when we believe something as true, uh, regardless of whether or not we have all the data or regardless of what the data points to. And so we make this assumption about something and we hold it to be truth, regardless of whether it is or not. The challenge then is when we hold an assumption, it leads us in a direction that may or may not be right. So let me give you a few examples. Uh, these are from uh, experts in various fields throughout history who made assumptions uh, that, in my opinion, turned out to be incredibly wrong. So in 1927, there was a man by the name of H.M. Warner. Now, uh, you might know him as uh, part of the Warner Brothers studio. And this is a time when they were just beginning to talk about films and movies with audio and specifically with actors talking. And H.M. Warner, 1927, said this. He said, who wants to hear actors talk? Uh, Rex Lambert, editor of a magazine called The Listener in 1936, wrote this. He said, television will not matter in your lifetime or in mine. Uh, Perhaps one of the assumptions that was maybe most wrong was by the uh, man named Ken Olson. He's the CEO of a company called DEC. He said this in 1977. He said, there is no reason anyone would want a computer in their home. Uh, How wrong he turned out to be, right? And, And finally, one more for you. Don Rowe, who was the director of Decca Records, he turned down the Beatles. And he told their promoter, Brian Epstein, he said, we don't like your boys sound. Groups of guitarists are on the way out. Now, the sad reality of of, of each of those people is the assumptions that they made led them to a wrong conclusion and ultimately led them to make bad decisions. I mean, you can just imagine Don Rowe, who passed up the Beatles. I mean, lost Decca Records millions and millions of dollars. and, And Ken Olson, who said, who needs a computer? And now we literally wouldn't have church this morning if computers didn't exist because almost everyone has a computer in their home. But their wrong assumptions led them to a wrong conclusion. And part of what I want to draw on that this morning is I want us to think about and to wrestle with our assumptions. Because I think just like the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, just like the Jewish people in the first century that Jesus is teaching to in the gospel of John, I think many of us have made assumptions about who Jesus is, about how Jesus functions. And those assumptions lead us to conclusions. And I want us to to just wrestle with that this morning. So let me ask you this, what assumptions have you made about God? And and I, I know that this right now, this season of life that we're in is an especially unique and for many of us, an especially difficult season. And so maybe you're in a position where you've lost your job or you're a local business owner and your business is struggling because of this season that we're in. And so maybe you've begun to make assumptions about, you know, I don't know if God cares about me or does God see the situation I'm in? Or if God sees, why doesn't he take action? Does he just simply not care? Is he incapable? And sometimes the data seems to point us in one direction. And so we make an assumption and often those assumptions lead us to wrong conclusions. So I want you to take a moment this morning and just think about the assumptions that you've made about who God is and how God functions. Because the tricky thing about an assumption is when we make an assumption and assume something is true, what happens is we find ourselves navigating in the dark. We don't have all of the information that we need to make a good and wise decision. And if there's one thing I've noticed in life, navigating in the dark is difficult, Um, Maybe you've had the experience where you've had to drive uh, in an unknown city in the dark, or you've driven out in rural roads in the dark in a place that you're unfamiliar with. It's challenging because you're kind of feeling your way along as you go. Uh, And and it's more difficult to see. It's more difficult to find your way. Let me give you an example like this. Um, I've got three little kids, uh, ages three, five, and six. And frequently one of them is up in the night. And so myself or my wife will get up to to tend to whatever they need. Uh, but my kids love to leave little traps for me, right? They, they don't intend this, but they leave toys out that I don't see in the dark. And so on more than one occasion, I've been fumbling my way through a dark house and, and I've stepped on, uh, they love little trinkety toys that seem to have a thousand sharp points on them, especially when you step on them unbeknownst to you in the middle of the night And and I'm navigating and I'm kicking toys or stepping on something, trying not to wake any of my kids when I yelp out in pain. Uh, Because navigating in the dark is is just hard. And so one night in particular, uh, one of the kids was up. And so I I was dead out asleep. I mean, you know, dreaming, just out cold. One of my kids wakes up. And so I'm I'm oblivious, trying to navigate in the dark. And I know that our our bedroom door is, is sort of propped open. Right, And so I'm feeling my way. I know the door is kind of open, so I'm trying to find it. And as I'm feeling my way, I think, okay, my hands are out in front of me. I'm not going to hit the door. Uh, but what happened was I managed to put the door right between my outstretched hands. And so I'm walking to meet my kids and I smacked the door like straight across the forehead. And it was one of those moments, like part of me, I I was so oblivious and then I smacked it and I smacked it hard. Like everything's dark and all of a sudden I'm seeing stars and I don't know where I am. And I think, Jesus, I'm coming home. Somebody broke in to our house. I've just been hit with a baseball bat. And this, this is how I go now, I guess. Right. But I, I couldn't see what was in front of me because I was trying to navigate life in the dark and navigating in the dark is always difficult because we can't quite see what's in front of us. The other thing I've noticed about navigating life in the dark is that it seems to make our fears seem all the more prevalent. So one more example for you. Uh, I was on a camping trip with a a friend of mine, and we were in the mountains of uh, upper New York in the Adirondacks, and we were staying in this really just jankety lean-to shelter that had a, a wooden floor on the bottom. And when you're sleeping on this, we didn't have pillows. So our head is basically on the floor and, and any movement that you made just echoed across the wooden decking of this floor. And, and so we're, we're packed in our sleeping bags. We're getting ready to go to sleep. And, and I turned over uh, on this wood decking. And, and that's when I noticed my, my friend who was sleeping next to me, his breathing seemed really labored. Like I could hear him just breathing deeply. I was like, is he having, is he having an asthma attack? Is is, is he Okay. And a couple minutes later, he goes, uh, Aaron, and his voice is shaky, you know, like you can hear the fear and the nerves in his voice. And I, I kind of chuckle I'm like, yeah, uh, are you okay? He goes, uh, did you just, did you just move? And I kind of chuckled. I said, yeah, I, I just rolled over. He goes, oh, he goes, I was convinced that there was a bear on the other side of the shelter because every time I rolled over, I just echoed that sound because his head is on the floor. And he thinks that this bear is ready to rip into this shelter. And you could just see the relief on his face because in the dark, he couldn't make out. "Is, Is there a bear out there? What am I hearing? Because often when we're navigating in a dark circumstance, as I said before, it's harder to see our way forward, but it's also a place where our fears seem amplified so there's this moment in John chapter 8 where Jesus makes this statement. He'll, He'll claim that I am the light of the world. And one of the things that I want us to wrestle with this morning is what is this claim of Jesus? He'll say in John chapter 8, verse 12, he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. And part of what I want to suggest to you this morning is that some of us in living life apart from Jesus, apart from his plan and purpose for us, we are attempting to navigate life in the dark. And we, when we navigate life in the dark, maybe driven by wrong assumptions that we make, I think we often find ourselves led astray. And we often find ourselves in places where our fears seem amplified. And so what I want us to wrestle with this morning is how do we navigate life well? How do we not walk in darkness, but how do we walk illumined by the light of Jesus Christ, who is the light of the world? And so with that, I want to pick up in John chapter 8, beginning in verse 12. There Jesus says this. It says, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Pharisees challenged him. Here you are appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. Jesus answered, even if I testify on my, my own behalf, my testimony is valid for I know where I came from and I know where I'm going, but you have no idea where I, where I come from or where I'm going. You judge by human standards. If I I pass judgment on no one, but if I do judge, my decisions are true because I'm not alone. I stand with the father who sent me in your own law. It's written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I am the one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the father who sent me. Then they asked him, where's your father? You do not know me or my father. Jesus replied. If you knew me, you would know my father. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts near the place where the offerings are put. Yet no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. So as I mentioned before, there's that claim of Jesus in John chapter 8 verse 12. He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And what I want to push into this morning is what does it mean for us? What does it mean practically and tangibly for us to believe Jesus' claim that he is the light of the world? And, and so as we push into this, I, I want to reflect a little bit on, on what we mean by walking in darkness. So so think about your own life and think about places where where maybe you've walked in darkness. So I, I think there's a couple things metaphorically that, that this looks like. So, Uh, Maybe in a work situation, if you don't have the right information that you need or the right knowledge, uh, somebody might say, hey, how's that project at work going? And if you're not involved, you don't have the information that you need, you might say, you know what, I don't know, I'm, I'm in the dark on that, right? We use it in metaphorical sense to say, I don't have the knowledge and the information that I need. Now, in, in other places, when you're navigating an unknown location, trying to figure out where you're at, you might say, you know, I, I'm, I'm in the dark, I'm trying to, to navigate, uh, but the way before me is uncertain or unknown. And, and navigating in the dark then, it makes finding our way, orienting ourselves, especially difficult. And so, so I think beyond a metaphorical sense, when we talk about walking through life in the dark, here's what I want to suggest to you that this means in part. Navigating life in the dark is to say, I don't have the knowledge, wisdom, and experience that I need to navigate what lies in front of me. And one of the challenging things about life is uh, you learn to navigate life better as you go, as you acquire wisdom and knowledge and maturity and understanding. Uh, The the challenging thing is that comes with experience, with evaluation, with life lived. So if you're like me, I think back to my college days. I think back to uh, life in my 20s. And there's so many things that I fumbled my way through, so many things that I didn't do well because I didn't have the knowledge, wisdom, and maturity I needed at the time. I, I gained it as I went. Hopefully, I'm learning and growing in that process. But, but often life can feel like I don't quite have what I need. I'm, I'm gaining wisdom and maturity as I go. But what's in front of me feels like I'm feeling my way through a, a dark place. I think other times for some of us, we're trying to just figure out where am I at in life? What am I doing? Where, where am I headed? What's my orientation? What's the direction that I'm heading with my life? What should I invest myself in? And, and so we're asking these fundamental questions, I think wrapped up into this are questions about our identity. Who am I? What is my life to be about? What am I to invest myself in? And, and the question then becomes, what foundational basis do we have to answer these questions? So at some level, the question that we should be asking is, if Jesus says, if you follow me, you'll never walk in darkness. The question is, how do we know what's true? How do we know what knowledge to follow? How how do we locate ourselves in the realm of life and begin to set a trajectory and an orientation for our life? What's, What's right? What's good? What's true? How do we find a way forward? And what I want to suggest to you is my observation is this is that apart from Jesus, many of us are simply doing our best trying to navigate life. And, and so I think what happens is there, there's sort of four ways that we attempt to navigate through life. I, I think the first is this, we navigate life based on emotion. And so the question that we find ourselves fundamentally wrestling with is, is what feels right. And then I think a little bit, this is a cultural premise that, that people would say, you know what, whatever feels right to you, whatever feels good, just, just do that regardless of whether it's actually good, right, or true. And so, so many of us find ourselves trusting our emotions to be the final decision maker. I'll, I'll just be transparently honest with you. One of, one of the things that I wrestle with, um, you know, as, as pastors, we're, we're not immune to difficult situations. Uh, the last couple of weeks, I found myself wrestling with anxiety. Um, in and out in my life, I wrestle with seasons of depression. And, and part of I think what God is beginning to teach me is that in those seasons, what I feel isn't truth. In a moment of anxiety, in a moment where I'm wrestling with depression and and I'm artificially low, I, I feel things that I know aren't true. And so the challenge is if we make all of our life decisions based on emotion, what feels right, we will find ourselves trapped in wrong assumptions leading to wrong conclusions. But I think so much of our culture would say, this is a great way to make decisions and navigate life. Secondly, I think for some of us, we we are just looking to culture to say, what is universally accepted as right? And and so whatever culture around us tells us is truth and right and good, we find ourselves sort of swept up in this. The challenge is, is that culture, it, it functions like a river current. There's a pull to it. And so when everybody's headed in a certain direction and everyone is saying, yes, this is truth. Here's what's right. Here's what's been accepted. You should pour your life into this thing. Sometimes it's hard not to get sucked into the current of culture and find ourselves just saying, yeah, whatever anyone else accepts is right and true. And I mean, not our whole culture can't be wrong, right? And so we find ourselves going along with whatever is universally accepted. For others of us, it's, it's what's familiar. And it's what are, what, what's the pattern and the, the way of doing life that we're used to? The, the challenge to this is uh, sometimes we get used to a pattern of brokenness and dysfunction. I think, apart from Jesus, there's this idea that we're all affected by the influence and the impact of sin. And so apart from Jesus, often the familiar pattern of the way that I do life is a pattern that is fundamentally broken by sin. My initial drives and desires and passions are influenced by sin. And so we come to experience a level of dysfunction as familiar, and that's how we begin to make decisions. And sometimes what's familiar comes from our, our family. It's what you have seen lived and modeled as right. It's, and maybe it's not just family. It's the community that you're a part of. And so you see things lived and modeled around you. And so when we talk about navigating life, it's what feels right. What's accepted as right culturally. What am I used to? Or, or what have I seen lived and modeled? And that becomes the, the pattern and the framework for, for beginning to navigate life. The, the challenge is that I think what Jesus would tell us, if, if he's the light of life, he says, whoever follows him will never walk in darkness. I think we have to recognize that following these ways of navigating life do not ultimately lead us to what is good and right and true. And so what I want to suggest to you that biblically, biblically walking in darkness is living in sin apart from the truth of Jesus. When when you look at the testimony of scripture, when when you think about what it is to live and walk in light, it's to live and walk in the truth of Jesus. To live and walk in darkness then is to reject that, to say, I'm going to do life on my own. I'm going to do what feels right. I'm going to do what culture says is right. I'm just going to take the pattern that's familiar that I grew up with in my family and implement that as the way that I do life. But often that leads us to a place of darkness, living in sin apart from the radical transforming truth of who Jesus is and how he calls us to live. So the apostle Paul says it this way. This is Ephesians chapter 5. And if you read the book of Ephesians, in the first half of Ephesians, Paul is giving thanks for the transforming, redeeming work of Jesus. He'll say things in chapter 2 about how you were dead in sin and transgressions, but God who was rich in mercy made us alive in Jesus In chapters three, four, and five, then Paul begins to describe what right living looks like. And so in Ephesians chapter five, verse eight, he says this, he says, for you were once darkness. What does he mean by that? He means to live in darkness is to live in life apart from Jesus, not walking in the truth of the word of God and how he's called us to live. He says, for you were once darkness, but no more, you're different. But now you are light in the Lord. And so what Paul says is now that you know truth, you've been exposed to truth, you're walking in truth. Once you were dead in sin and transgression, but now you were alive in Jesus, Paul says, that's who you are. So he then says, live as children of the light. In other words, live out that identity of who God is forming you and shaping you to be as as those who are walking in the light of the Lord. And, And you'll notice then that Paul says this, he says, live as children of the light. Why? He says, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. So if you want to talk about how do we navigate life well, it's this, this transformation from living in darkness apart from Jesus to stepping into the transforming work of living in the light and the truth of who Jesus is. And what happens, Paul says, when we live as children of the light, when we live redeemed and transformed and forever changed and impacted by Jesus, he says we live in a way where the, the fruit of what is good and right and true comes to fruition in our life. And notice Paul continues. He says, and find out what pleases the Lord. You want to find out what pleases the Lord? Look in his word. Look at how Jesus lived. He says this, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness. Now notice this contrast here. Paul talks about things that are good, righteous, and true bear fruit. But he says the deeds of darkness, the living life apart from Jesus, he says, it's fruitless. It leads to nothing productive in our lives. And I think Jesus' claim to be the light of the world is for us a claim that what is good, right, and true is ultimately found in him. And so I think if this is the claim of Jesus, that he is truly the light of the world, I think the question for us is, is will we follow him? I think the question for us is, can we pour our lives into Jesus and recognize that truth, righteousness, and goodness is found in him? And ultimately, I mean, Jesus says this elsewhere in the gospel of John. He says, I've come that you might have life and have it to the full. And what we recognize is the fullness and the abundance of the way that we were meant to do life is found as we follow Jesus as the light of the world. So I want to push into this even more practically and more tangibly uh, because my concern is, that phrase, I am the light of the world, it's, it's one of those maybe religious phrases that we're used to. So I, I want to ask this question, what does it mean? What does it tangibly and practically mean that Jesus claims to be the light of the world? What does this fundamentally mean for us? I think one of the first things that it means for us is that ultimately Jesus is the source of truth. And, and this goes back to what Paul says in Ephesians 8, right? You live as children of the light because the light bears the fruit of truth and goodness and righteousness. And so part of what we claim when we say, Jesus, you are the light of the world, is we're saying, you are are the very source of truth who illumines the world in front of us. C.S. Lewis said it this way. I I think this is profound. C.S. Lewis said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. I I want you to think about what C.S. Lewis is saying there. Imagine you're out on a a cold, dark morning. Maybe you're a hunter who got up early to get to your favorite hunting spot, or maybe you just like to get up early and go for a morning walk. But there's that, that moment before the sun rises, where the morning is especially crisp and cool, where things in the world seem especially dark. And then there's that moment where you begin to see the sort of the gray on the horizon and and we watch the sun come up and there's this beautiful moment, right? Where you feel the warmth of the sun and you see the beauty of the magnificent colors of the sunrise. And, And I think there's something beautiful about the beauty of God's creation that's testified to in that moment. And then what happens is as the sun continues to rise, the world around you that was once dark, it begins to be illuminated. And what happens is your perspective changes. You begin to see the world differently because what once was shrouded in darkness now has the light of truth shed on it. And and I think this is exactly what C.S. Lewis is saying. He's saying, I believe in the sunrise, not only because I see that the sun has risen, I watched it come up, but he says, as the sun rises, it illumines everything else. And I have a new perspective on the world. And C.S. Lewis says the the same thing is true of Christianity as a worldview. I I believe it, he says, because uh, I I believe that Jesus died and rose again, that he died for our sins, that he brings us redemption. But he says more than that, I believe the truth of Christianity brings understanding and brings a depth of, of truth to the world around us. And in that way, by it, by Christianity, by belief in Jesus and the truth that he brings, we begin to see the world in what it really is and how to navigate life with truth and goodness and righteousness. I think not only is Jesus the truth to proclaim that Jesus is the light of the world is to proclaim our hope in his salvation. And again, we see this in what Paul says, for once you were darkness, but now you were light in the Lord. And to live with Jesus' proclamation that he is the light of the world is to step out of darkness, to step into light. And, and, and elsewhere, Paul says this in Corinthians. He says, if anyone is in Christ, you're a new creation. Part of stepping into the light and the truth of Jesus, the light that is goodness, righteousness, and truth is to step into a place of being saved from what once held you in bondage. I'll flesh this out more in a second. Likewise, I think Jesus' claim to be the light of the world is also about recognizing his provision and recognizing his protection. Now, I think to fully understand these things, true salvation, provision, and protection that are uh, held in Jesus' claim to be the light of the world, to really understand these things, I think we have to understand the context in which Jesus is teaching You'll remember last week, uh, as Pastor Steve talked about Jesus' claim that streams of living water flow out of him, that Jesus is teaching in the temple during a festival known as the Feast of Tabernacles. And the Feast of Tabernacles is fundamental to understanding Jesus' claim to have streams of living water and to understand his claim to be the light of the world. You see, the Feast of Tabernacles uh, requires us to understand a little bit of the history of the people of Israel. If you go back to the story of Exodus, the Exodus account is the story of how the people of Israel were held in bondage. They were held in slavery in Egypt. And this was a cruel and bitter experience for them. In Egypt, the Pharaohs forced them under slave labor to build their cities and they worked and they lived under the cracking of their oppressor's whip. And they they were driven to work under brutal conditions. And and we're told in the scriptures that the cries of the people of God came up before him and God sees their plight and God takes compassion on them. And the story of Exodus is this story of God bringing the people of Israel out of slavery and out of bondage in Egypt and into the freedom of the promised land that he has declared for them. Now, what happened is as the people were brought out of Egypt, God sent 10 plagues uh, against the Pharaoh. And finally the Pharaoh relents and he says, yes, get out of here. I I can't stand uh, any more of these plagues. And as the people of Israel leave Egypt, they head out into the Sinai peninsula, but because of their disobedience, because of their unwillingness to hold to what God has promised them in faith, they find themselves wandering for 40 years in the wilderness. And so what would happen, the Feast of Tabernacles is, is elsewhere called the Feast of Booths. And so what would happen is, is every year in, in late October, the people of Israel w- would build out, out of reeds and out of brush and out of bushes. They would build a, a small booth-like structure and they, they would actually live and reside in this. And what it was is the Feast of Booths was a moment to remember that when they traversed the Sinai Peninsula, when they walked through the desert on the way to the promised land, that God provided shelter and God provided protection for them. And so part of what's happening too is in the season of October, this is a time when the people of Israel have just experienced the drought-like conditions of their arid climate in the summer months. So what happens is during the Feast of Booths, they build this little tabernacle, this little booth that they live in, and it's a reminder of the Exodus story when God sheltered and protected them in the desert. Now, I've never led a nation of people on an Exodus, so I have no idea what that's like, but but if I'm planning the route, I'm probably not going to take it through the desert Uh, because as the people of Israel are coming out of Egypt, think about this, they've got it's the young, it's the old, it's men, women, and children. It's people who are capable to walk, those who aren't capable of, of walking. Uh, this, this is going to be a long and arduous journey. So if I am Moses and it's under my control, I'm saying, okay, what's the shortest, easiest route where there's an abundance of food? But that's, that wasn't God's plan for them. Because of their disobedience, God leads them through the desert. And now a couple things. In the desert... Uh, water is pretty scarce. That's what makes it a desert. And food is not abundant by any means. So there's this moment as the people of Israel are walking through the desert when they're out of water and the people are grumbling and complaining. And God tells Moses, I want you to strike this rock with your staff. And Moses strikes this rock and water begins flowing out of this rock. And so you heard Pastor Steve talk about this last week. Part of what happened during the Feast of Tabernacles is they would take a pitcher of water from the pool of Siloam and they would pour it on a rock and they would say, with joy, we will draw water from the wells of salvation. And remember, this is in October when they've just come through a drought season, even in the the first century time that they're writing as they commemorate the exodus. And so in the middle of a season of doubt uh, of drought, the people of Israel pour water on the rock and say with joy, we draw water from the wells of salvation. And what they're saying is just as God provided water, when we were stranded in the desert, we trust and believe that God will provide water and sustenance and the source of salvation will again come from our God who is faithful, right? And all of this is bound up in Jesus teaching in the temple during the feast of tabernacles. Now, Another key part of the Exodus story is that as the people are, are leaving Egypt, they're marching out into the desert. They're, they're navigating for them what is, for all intents and purposes, a very dark place. They don't, they don't know the route that's in front of them. God is leading them, not by the shortest route, but he leads them through the Sinai Peninsula. And there's a sense in which they have no idea where they're going. They, they question Moses' leadership constantly. But in Exodus 13, we're told this. In Exodus 13 verse 20, it says this, after leaving Succoth, they camped at Etham on the edge of the desert, right? They're getting ready to cross in. Verse 21 says this, by day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. So now remember, the Feast of Tabernacles is commemorating the Exodus story. So one of the core things that would happen during the Feast of Tabernacles is they would build four large lampstands. Now, I'm talking so large that they had to build ladders up the side of these things. And the lamp was so big and had so much oil that they would literally, literally use priestly garments as the wick. And and so what would happen is when when they lit this wick, it would illumine the temple courts with a brilliant display of, of, of light. And what this was commemorating for the people of Israel, it reminded them that when they were lost in the desert, their God, who was gracious, manifested his presence among them as a pillar of fire to give them light and guidance and protection to lead them through a place where they weren't sure how to get to the promised land. But God said, listen, I will reside among you as a pillar of fire to give you guidance. And so you can imagine this, this spectacle that throughout the city of Israel, that the temple was illumined with a brilliant display of light and fire. Now, for us, we're used to having street lights, electric lights. So even for us in a city, it's not all that dark. We're used to public lighting. Now imagine first century Israel, right? They they don't have led street lamps to light up the, the, the streets in front of them, right? When it gets dark, it's dark. So imagine that you are sitting in the city of, Israel, of Jerusalem and everything is dark. And for the people of Israel, the temple, this is the place where God dwells among them in the Holy of Holies. And suddenly during the Feast of Tabernacles, these lampstands that extend into the sky are, are lit up and it casts its light all over the city of Jerusalem. One rabbi said it this way. He said, there, when these lamps are lit and he said, there is no home in all of Jerusalem that is not... Uh, Reflecting the light of the temple in this season. So I I want you to grasp this. Jesus is standing in the temple courts and these magnificent lamps filled with oil that use priestly garments as wicked, these massive lamps, they're lit and they're illuminating. And it's this brilliant display of fire that that reminds the people of Israel of God manifesting his presence in a pillar of fire. And Jesus is standing there in the temple courts and he claims to them, I am the light of the world. For anyone who's there, who's, who's a Jew, they, they are seeing the Exodus story play out in front of them. And there's this moment in the story of Exodus that the people of Israel, they, they head out into the desert and they're being guided by the very presence of God in this pillar of fire and smoke. And in chapter 14, tragedy strikes. The people of Israel find themselves in the desert and they turn behind them and Pharaoh has changed his mind and he sends his armies after them. And when you read Exodus 14, what happens is they are in a place where the Red Sea is on one side and the armies of Pharaoh are on the, are on the other side. And the people of Israel are in a place where they are trapped. There is no way out. Their, their sudden death is in front of them. Either they drowned or they are put to death by the most powerful military force in the world at that time, the armies of Egypt. And, and, and maybe you know the story that God divides the Red Sea and he leads the people through on dry ground. But listen to this. In Exodus 14, verse 19, it says this, Then the angel of the Lord, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to one side and light to the other, so neither went near the other side all night long. Verse 23 says, the Egyptians pursued the Israelites and all of Pharaoh's horses and chariots followed them into the sea. Verse 24 says this, during the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and he threw them into confusion. He jammed the wheels of their chariots so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting against Egypt. I want you to grasp the depth of what Jesus is saying here. Again, picture Jesus surrounded by these magnificent candles of light illumining all of Israel, all of Jerusalem. And everyone who's there during the Feast of Tabernacles, they are remembering the Exodus story. And they know for them, the pillar of fire is the very presence of God among them. It is the glory cloud of God's presence. So when Jesus declares, I am the light of the world, what he is declaring, he's saying, I am the very presence of the glory of God among you. And he's recalling the Exodus story, and what he's telling them is when when the people of Israel were doomed to destruction, either by drowning in the Red Sea or being put to death by the armies of Pharaoh, he's reminding them, listen, when you were in a place of death, God provided a way where there did not seem to be a way, and the pillar of fire moved behind them, and God fought for the people of Israel, and God single-handedly defeated the most powerful military in the world. And church, here's what I want to suggest to you today, that when we talk about Jesus as truth, when we talk about Jesus as salvation, as provision and protection. We have to do this in the context of the Exodus story, of a God who can provide water in the desert, of a God who can fight for his people. Exodus 14, verse 14, it says, God will fight for you. You need only be still. Here's what I want to suggest to you. Man, things are weird right now, culturally. A global pandemic, I mean, I don't, I don't even understand all the implications of what this means and what this is. I only know my own anxieties and fears seem very real. And so as I'm reading this and I see Jesus' declaration that I am the light of the world and I think about it in the context of the Exodus story of the people being let out, I felt like the thing God was challenging me with is this, Aaron, do you trust me to make a way where there does not seem to be a way? And I don't know where you're at this morning. Maybe you're in a place where you you feel overwhelmed. Maybe you've lost employment. Maybe you're in a place where you own a business and you're not sure if you can pay your employees. You don't know if it's going to be open. Maybe you're in a position where you have medical concerns and you're not allowed to see your doctor because things are restricted. Maybe you're in a situation this morning where you're going, I don't see a way out from this. I pray this morning that you can hold to the truth of Jesus' claim to be the light of the world. And here's the challenge for us is, can we trust our life to Jesus? Can we trust that he is, we'll sing in just a second, that he is truly the way maker, that when we feel the darkness and the wilderness of the desert in front of us, that Jesus, who is the very glory of the presence of God, can lead us through, that he can bring us to victory. Do you believe this morning what Exodus says, that our God will fight for us, that he will provide a way where there doesn't seem to be a way, that he is our salvation, our truth, our provision and protection. When Jesus says, I am the light of the world, this is what he's inviting us into. And he tells us, Jesus says, whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will experience the light of the world. And and that's our, our question for us this morning. Do you believe that, that you can walk in the truth of who Jesus is and that he can make a way? Now, here's the challenge. The Pharisees, they essentially ask Jesus this question. They go, okay, can we trust what you say? And notice how they phrase it. And they try to pull some legal language into this. In verse 14, or verse 13, excuse me, they say this. It says the Pharisees challenged him, Jesus. They go, here you are appearing as your own witness. They go, your testimony is not valid. In other words, the Pharisees are saying, okay, Jesus, you're standing here claiming to be the light of the world. In other words, claiming to be God himself present right here in the temple courts. But they go, there's nobody else saying this with you. If you say this by yourself, it's your own testimony. There's no way that it's valid. Now, what the Pharisees don't remember right now, Jesus will remind them, is that Jesus has already talked to them about who his witnesses are. And so when Jesus responds to them, he says in verse 17, he says, in your own law, it's written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. He says, I am the one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the father who sent me elsewhere in John chapter five, verse 30. uh, Jesus says this. He says, if I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. Now, did you notice that Jesus says, listen, I, I believe what the law says. If I testify about myself, it's not true. But verse 32, he says, But there is another who testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony about me is true. He says, You have sent John, John the Baptist, and he has testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it that you may be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose to follow him and enjoy his light. I have testimony weightier than that of John for the works that the father has given me to finish. The very works that I'm doing testify that the father has sent me. And the father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You've never heard his voice nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell among you. For you do not believe the one he sent. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. And and what Jesus tells us there is the truth is that Jesus' word, what he's been speaking and testifying to, his works, I mean, he has is, he is fed 5,000 people. He turned water into wine. He walked on water. People who have been sick were made healed and, and whole. And, and Jesus says, my word, my works, the very thing that I'm doing among you and these other witnesses. He says, John the Baptist t- testified about me. He says, the words of Scripture scripture testify about me, but you don't see them. He says these very things validate his identity and trustworthiness. Thinking back to that question, can you trust your life to follow Jesus as the light of the world? I think we have to wrestle with these very things. Think about your own life and where you have seen the works of Jesus and his provision before. The Jesus who has provided for you all the way up to this point will continue to provide for you. Can you trust that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, that he is unchanging? That that the way he has provided for you, the way he has manifested his love and grace and mercy in your life bears witness to the truth of who he is? And and notice what, what Jesus says here. He says, you study the scriptures diligently. Remember, he's teaching to the Pharisees and teachers of the law. Because you think that they have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. And he, he warns them. He says, listen, you have intellectual knowledge of the scriptures, but it hasn't gone to your heart. You haven't trusted me with legitimate faith and belief to say, Jesus, we want to follow you. And listen, maybe there's some of us who've been in the church for a long time and you know the Bible, you know, intellectually what the right answer would be. But when Jesus leads you into a place where you're going, I'm not sure what the future holds. And he says, trust me, you're going, ah, I'm not sure. Can you trust that the light of the world will never lead you into a place of darkness, but is always leading you into what is true and righteous and good? And this goes beyond an intellectual belief and moves us into a place of actually trusting our life to Jesus. And so the call for us is to follow Jesus, to move from darkness into light. And notice what Jesus says in in, in verse 13 verse 12. He says, whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And there's the invitation. Will we follow him? And what I want to suggest to you this morning is that to follow Jesus is three things. To follow Jesus is not emulation, but it's transformation. Here's what I mean by that. To emulate somebody is to watch what they do and to try to copy their, their actions and behavior. When Jesus comes and says, I'm the light of the world, he doesn't just say, I want you to try really hard to act like me. No, no, no. To follow Jesus is not just to emulate, to mimic who he is, but it's to experience transformation from darkness to light. This is what Paul said in Ephesians 5. You were once darkness. Now your light is in the Lord. Live as children of the light. This is what Corinthians says. Anyone who is in Christ, the old is gone. The new has come. You're a new creation. This is not just mimicking better behavior that we see Jesus doing, but this is being transformed by the light of God's grace and God's truth. And what happens is the very things that we desire are transformed, and we come to desire the things of God that are true, righteous, and good. To follow Jesus is not just sort of, but surrendered, right? When Jesus says, I want you to follow me, this is the Jesus who elsewhere says, if you want to follow me, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. In other words, pour your life wholly and entirely into Jesus. This means surrendering my, my plan, my purpose for my life. This means surrendering my agenda, For too many of us, we want to get stuck right here in sort of like, ah, Jesus, I want just enough of the light of the world to make my life better, but not enough to call me to sacrifice and surrender. But when Jesus says, I want you to come and follow me, this isn't a sort of, this is no pour your life into me, surrender over to me. Because to step from darkness into light means leaving behind an old way of life. And Jesus, in saying, I want you to surrender to me, to follow me, it's not remaining in darkness, but it's stepping into the light, experiencing that transformation that he brings. And so I think this is the question we have to wrestle with today. Will you step boldly into life with Jesus? Maybe there's a past pattern of living that you're holding on to. Maybe you've been living as a slave to your emotions, whatever feels right or good. That's what I'll do. Maybe you have a pattern of dysfunction and brokenness that you grew up in, and that's what feels normal. And that's how you find yourself navigating the dark world in front of you. And suddenly you're seeing the limitations of that. Maybe you've been swept up in the current of culture and whatever they say is right, good, and true. I'll just follow along with that. And all of those wrong assumptions lead us to a place of brokenness and to an existence that feels hollow and empty and like there needs and must be something more. And what I want to challenge you with this morning is to step boldly into life with Jesus and experience the transforming, life-changing work of what it is to believe and to follow Jesus as the light of the world and to know that his truth brings salvation and we can experience his provision and protection in a profound way. That the God who led Israel through the desert and brought them to a place of abundance will likewise lead us to the fullness of life that he has for each one of us. Um, Kyle's now in the band are going to lead us in a song called Waymaker. And what I love about this song is this is a moment for us to declare out loud what we believe maybe internally that God is a God who can make a way where there doesn't seem to be a way. And maybe this morning you're wrestling to believe that. You're going, I don't know if I believe that God will actually make a way for me. Sometimes when I'm in that place, I go back and I look at scripture and I read the story of the Israelites in Exodus 13 and 14. And I go, God, I see that your word says that you can make a way where there doesn't seem to be a way. I see that your word declares that you're a God who fights on behalf of your people. And sometimes my prayers, God, give me the grace to believe that that just as you fought for the people of Israel, you will fight for your son or daughter who's right here, right now. And so let this song, Waymaker, let this be a cry of your heart. Let it be a prayer before God. Let it be a declaration this morning of your belief in a God who is the Waymaker.
1: Amen, church. As we close with this last song we're going to make the declaration that our God is here and I know we aren't gathered together this morning but collectively we are the church His Holy Spirit resides within each one of us so as we make this declaration that you are here we're making that declaration that God is in the place where you are present by the power of His Holy Spirit so let's worship Him together
2: You are here moving in our
1: Makes a way when there is no way. Even when I don't see it you're working, even when I don't feel it you're working, never stop, never stop working, never stop, never stop working. Even when I don't see. stop it. Never stop it. Never stop it. Even
3: when I'm seeing the way.
0: Waymaker and what it affirms and teaches us about the truth of who God is I, I just want to read a couple of the lyrics it says waymaker miracle worker promise keeper light in the darkness my God that is who you are and one of the things I want to leave you with this morning is is God is not just the waymaker miracle worker promise keeper light in the darkness for other people God is the waymaker promise keeper light in the darkness for you and, and I pray that you go today knowing that the God who promises to be good and faithful and true is a promise keeper and he will show and prove himself faithful. And so this morning, as as we leave this moment of worship, I'm gonna leave you with this benediction out of Numbers chapter six. In verse 24, it says, may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. And I pray that you abide in the truth and light and grace and peace of God this week.